For Steven Deusner, songwriters fall into one of two camps. They're the ones who want to tell you something. And then they're the ones who want to figure something out. And I think that the truckers definitely fall into that category. He's talking about the drive-by truckers, the band he just published a book about. He says their interest in leaving things open-ended is a big part of their genius in writing and singing about the American South. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. This week, a conversation with music critic Stephen Deusner about Southern rock, rockets, the masculinity of Jimmy Carter, and more. We also have a review of a local band that made President Obama's best of list. That's all coming up right after this. There's a rocket in northern Alabama. It's on Interstate 65. You see it as you cross into the state from Tennessee. You can see it from quite far away. That, for me, was always the indicator that I was getting to where I was going, which in my case was Tuscaloosa. I was coming from Indiana. I don't know, but that wasn't an aspect of the South that I thought about that much, the fact that Huntsville has one of the major space programs in the country. I would stop at the rest stop, get up, walk around, stand under the engines, eight of them, five feet across each, look straight up, think about how much power it would take to lift that giant tower all the way up into the sky. What I want to say is, for me, that rocket was the entrance into the South, even though I'd been south of the Mason-Dixon line for two states, coming through Kentucky and Tennessee. I didn't really understand anything about the South when I moved to Tuscaloosa in my 20s. I grew up in the North, a small liberal arts college town. I was a Yankee through and through. I probably still am. I learned that some of the stereotypes about the South have some truth, and also that it's a much more complex place than I think people tend to give it credit for. So I was excited to see Stephen Deusner's new book. Stephen's a music journalist. He writes for Uncut Magazine, Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, and other online and print publications. His book is called Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. It came out in September 2021, and as of January 2022, it's gone into a second printing. He's a Southerner, talking about a Southern band, and the Drive-By Truckers and Stephen both have really complicated relationships with the South. So I'm excited to present this conversation about how we think about the South, its legacy, its imprint on American culture more broadly, especially now in the 21st century, when in theory the past would be dead. But, of course, the past is never dead. It's not even past. The South brings with it a legacy of racism. Big questions of class come up as well. And the fact that the truckers really seem to love where they're from. What does it mean to not believe in the things associated with a place? Which really is relevant for anyone living in the United States, or should be but might feel especially present for Southerners because of the associations we have with the South. That racism, which, again, is all over the country, the Confederate flag, you know, and so on. The Truckers and Stephen are both trying to reckon with those legacies. This is Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Stephen Dusner, welcome to Interstates. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. So your book is organized by geography rather than chronologically, uh, which I kind of loved. Each chapter is about a different place. So it starts with the Shoals, Muscle Shoals. Then we go to Memphis, Tennessee, Athens, Georgia, Birmingham, and, and, and more. But I want to start in Selmer. That's the county seat of McNary County, Tennessee, on the border with Mississippi. And it's also, of course, where you grew up. Can you just start by telling me about growing up there? You know, it's, it's a very, very small town. You knew your neighbors, and you knew you pretty much knew everybody in town. You know, it 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 was uh, it was great because you got to play in the woods all the time, and you got to just you know walk into town whenever you wanted to. And um, but it also meant that if you did something wrong, people would know, and people would tell your parents about that. You moved to the north from was it from Memphis? You moved to Delaware. And you write that it was around then that you started to see McNair County as a place tinged with tragedy. Yes. Um, 
First, I discovered the drive-by truckers, which helped me kind of romanticize my southern past. But it was, I don't remember the exact year, but after I'd left, Mary Winkler shot her husband. She was a pastor's wife in Selmer, and for a variety of reasons, she shot her husband with a shotgun and grabbed their small children and fled. And it made national news. I learned about it from CNN. And I remember, like, it was the top story on CNN.com one day. And I just kind of clicked on it and said, oh, where, does th- where did that happen? And it's like, oh, that happened next door to where I grew up. And it was so strange in the, in the days following that to see the, the parents of friends of mine from Selmer on national TV giving interviews. And I was struck by a sort of measured response to all of this where they accepted it as a tragedy and they they understood that she had done it, but they were not uh, condemning her yet. They were still interested in finding out the reasons behind it and, and what brought this on and trying to understand it. And of course, that was also became a trucker's song, The Wig He Made Her Wear, which is... Um, it's a very different take on the sensationalism of the trial. So, Yeah, I think one of the ways we tend to think about the South in the more national consciousness is like as the Gothic, you know, just the, this exaggerated sort of grotesque tragedy all, all over the place constantly. And the truckers are dealing with that, clearly, and trying to make it more complex. Um, so let's go to the record store in... Um, in Delaware, where you first picked up the truck decoration day. Tell me about what was important about that album and, you know, sort of just the, that discovery. Well, a lot of what made it important was when I discovered it. I mean, obviously, I'd moved out of the South. I was living somewhere, a totally new culture for the first time in my life. And I went up there to follow my wife. She was attending graduate school for art history. And you know, I I went up there with her, but I didn't really have any job prospects. And, and you know, northern Delaware is not necessarily a, a thriving hub for, for would-be writers. I had a really bad job at a credit card company with some what I thought were dubious practices that I was not very happy about. Um, and my dad was uh, back in Selmer, and he had been diagnosed with brain cancer, and he would die uh, – within about a year of me moving up there. Um, so all of this combined to kind of make me feel a little lost in the world. And so I went by Rainbow Records in Newark, Delaware, and I saw a used copy of Decoration Day on CD. And I'd, I'd, I knew the name because I was all like, "Who? what is this band with this awful name? Uh, <laughs> but... I didn't really know them very well, and so I, I just bought it on kind of impulse. It's decoration day. Not a mind rolled a stone on his grave. What would he say? Keeping me down, boy, won't keep you away. You know, to, to hear, to be in that state, both, you know, mentally and physically in the state of Delaware, I guess, you know, <laughs> Uh, to be in that state and to hear that band sing about things that reminded me of home, that were home in a lot of ways. And to, 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 to hear a band sing with the, that kind of accent and with those kinds of details in them, like this was not the storybook South. It was not a gothic kind of retelling of old stories or anything like that. It was, it was the South as it existed right then. It was the South that I I understood and I recognized. And it was truly profound. It's one of the most profound introductions to a band I think I've ever had in my life. And, and, I mean, obviously it's followed through to a book. Okay, so let's say we're in that record store now and someone is like, so what's – who are the truckers? How would you describe (laughs) them? Well, first and foremost, I would say they're just a – badass rock and roll band, and I hope I can say that on the air. I mean, because that's that's the best word, I think, to describe them. They are, you know, a band with roots in Muscle Shoals in Athens, Georgia. 
they are Southern rock, but they are many other things as well. And I think that's kind of the key to their longevity is that they are so many different bands at different points in their career. So that, you know, they kind of start as this hokey alt-country band. And I say hokey in a, in a in a, an affectionate way. I mean, there are some sort of jokey songs at the beginning, but even at their very beginning, they are writing songs that are very character-driven and very sort of rooted in place. And then they become the Southern Rock Band who records Southern Rock Opera in 2001. And I think it is probably the most impactful and consequential statement about the South of the white South in the 21st century. Um, but, you know, even then, they they sort of shift from that into uh, this band that is really playing around with these R&B influences in the late 2000s. And then they shift from that into being a political band. There's, they've written some of the most uh, remarkable and affecting and smart protest songs of the last decade. American Band, I think, is is a, is a landmark album, rock album for for the 2010s. So a lot of different bands all in one. So let's get into them a bit. And maybe we'll go uh, sort of going geographically also in this conversation. Let's go to the Shoals and their start. Tell me about Patterson and Cooley and how, they, how their childhoods got them ending up as the truckers. Well, I think of Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley. They're the two main songwriters, guitar players, front men. I think of them as the um, – they're the two mainstays in the band, and they're sort of the two main characters in the book. And it's, it's kind of exploring their relationship with each other, and they're very different people. So Mike Cooley is, is kind of born out in the country. He grows up with his grandmother. He's not – he comes to songwriting and, and playing music kind of late in, in life, and um, he only knows Muscle Shoals as just home. He did not know a whole lot about the music that was made there and the music that was still being made there when he was born. It just all seemed like oldies on the radio to him. Meanwhile, Patterson was born, you know, his dad is David Hood, who's the bass player for the legendary Swampers played with pretty much everybody who ever recorded down there. Uh, Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, you know, they get called out in Leonard Skinner's song, Sweet Home Alabama. Uh, he gets called out by Mavis Staples on one of the Staples singer songs. And I think that's the height of the highest honor is to have Mavis Staples call you out in a song. And so he's living a very different life in the same place. And so they kind of meet when they've kind of moved out of their houses and they're trying to make a go of college and their roommates, they're very different. It's like uh, the odd couple. You know, Patterson is very talkative, very outgoing. Cooley's kind of reserved, kind of cool, kind of quiet. But they're kind of, you know, they have in common this desire to be in a rock band and to put Muscle Shoals back on the map. And so they formed a band called Adam's House Cat, and played all uh, as much as they could. They even won like a national con- not one, but they were runners up in a national contest for best unsigned band. And they never went anywhere. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Stephen Dusner about Southern Rock, the South, and the book he just published about the drive-by truckers. This is Interstates. It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. I'm talking with Stephen Dusner about Southern Rock, the South, and the book he just published about the drive-by truckers. So Adam's house cat, they get frustrated. That doesn't work out in spite of their talent. And they move to Memphis. Stephen wrote really eloquently about this. So I asked him to read a paragraph about how Memphis affected Patterson and Cooley. Here may be the beginning of Patterson truly figuring out his position as a white man confronting the lived reality of racial tension. He says he was naive about racism in Alabama, but our truest beliefs aren't always challenged in our hometowns. Instead, they must be tested elsewhere, in a place that puts everything in sharp relief. It's impossible to be naive about race in Memphis. 
Through their experiences with the mayoral election and the deep-seated anxieties it aggravated in the city, Patterson and Cooley began to recognize these cues, possibly without even knowing it. Their time in Memphis was crucial to their development as a socially conscious rock and roll band. It's the source of their formulation of the duality of the Southern thing, that mix of pride and shame that informs their, my, our feeling about our home. That relatively brief stay in Memphis made Patterson and Cooley into songwriters who could write about social issues, who had to write about social issues. It was hard to avoid, and that mayoral election was a big part of it. It was 1991. W.W. Harrington was running to be the first black man elected as mayor of Memphis against the white incumbent Richard Hackett. Harrington won, but by less than 150 votes. And what happened next, or didn't happen, was a result of the deeper history of race in the city. Beale Street historically has been the sort of capital of black culture in America. It's hugely important and locally disregarded for a long time. But when the election, when the votes were counted, they were very close and the black candidate had the higher count. And they thought that the white candidate would contest. And they thought if it was contested, there would be riots on Beale Street by black Memphians, um, which probably tells you a lot about, you know, the the attitude of white had towards blacks in Memphis at the time. So that didn't happen. And but I still think that the possibility of that happening and having to confront that uh, left a big impression on, on both of them. Were there aspects of their thinking about class relationships also that came up in Memphis? Yes. And it's interesting because they don't really write explicitly about race very often. But they write about class a lot. And they saw greater poverty in Memphis, especially when they were there, which was in like 91. There was not a lot going on. You know, the city had not really done much to sort of celebrate black history, black musical history in the city. They've corrected that a lot now. And and I think it's a very different city now. But at the time, there was a lot of poverty. And I think they saw that. They were, they were exposed to a very different kind of poverty than they saw, you know, urban poverty being very different from rural poverty. I think one of the things that I found most intriguing about them as I was discovering them through your book and listening to their music and hearing you talk about their songs is what you already mentioned about the way they're writing in characters. And, you know, there's there's the heathen songs, which I'm interested in thinking about, these characters that they're writing in who are At one point you write, the truckers aren't necessarily defending these men and women who operate on the outermost fringes of capitalism. But one of the things is, you know, capitalism doesn't give everyone access, equal access to like not being on the fringes, you know, (laughs) like people have to be in and out of the fringes for for it to work. And I, I think the rural South is a good example of that, of people not having access to, you know, good jobs, you know, just a lot of economic struggle. Yes. And so I wonder if you could talk more about what it means for them to be writing these songs. And this is throughout their career, uh, writing these songs uh, from the perspective of these outsiders. Okay, so let's start with a song called Putting People on the Moon. which is basically a monologue from the point of view of a character who lives in or near Huntsville, Alabama, and understands the importance of Huntsville for for NASA. And, you know, that's that's, um, the rockets that are are there. Hold on. No, I got distracted because I always stop at a rest stop near Huntsville, and there's this giant rocket. Right. I remember that. Yeah. It's a pretty dramatic sight there. It's really, uh, it's really something, especially when you kind of see it and you're still a mile or two away. It's like, yeah, it's huge. You know, like you've made it into Alabama at that point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I would never have expected, again, just to think about my relationship to the South. Like I, at the time, didn't know about Huntsville and its relationship to the space program and stuff. So 
I was like, what's this rocket doing in, <laughs> in northern Alabama? Well, I knew because I, I, at one point my parents talked about sending me to space camp there. And I was not sure I wanted to go because I think I was young enough to think you actually went to space. <laughs> and thinking like that's a little further from home than I want to go when I'm like I don't know ten or whatever, you know. So I wanted to do space camp too when I was around that age, <laughs> uh, and but I think I I think Huntsville, Alabama would have felt like going to space for me <laughs> being from Massachusetts. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a little further for for, the, uh, for you. But yeah. uh, okay, so what was the question? So the question Sorry. was uh, thinking about the characters. <laughs> yes. So. I think writing and character is very important for them to give a kind of grounded, realistic, and sympathetic portrayal of the South at this time. I think about a song like Putting People on the Moon, which is a Patterson song. And it is a monologue by a guy who understands that Huntsville, where, which is where he's from and where he's relating this song, is important to the space program. He knows that a lot of money comes into town for that, but he never sees this. And his life is just kind of falling apart. His wife dies of cancer. He, he loses his job. All of these things are impacting him. And the only way he can stay afloat, that he sees it, is to sell drugs, basically. And that's the sort of crux of the song. And it's a very powerful thing because it's, you know, you can sing about like, why don't we take the money that we spend on space exploration and make people's lives better? You can say that in a song, but it has more power when it comes from a character. It, it, it has more power when it's a story that way. And Patterson, in particular, writes almost like short stories um, with these great characters who maybe you don't want to have a beer with, maybe you don't want to hang out with, but they're still so complicated. And ultimately, they are so uh, sympathetic. I mean, he's um, he creates all of these these people who are relatable, even if you don't know the sort of milieu that they inhabit, even if you're not a Southerner you can still identify with these people. And I, I think that is part of what makes their songs powerful, but also what makes the message they're powerful. When they became more explicitly political songwriters, people were kind of upset. And, and I always thought like, no, they've been political songwriters since the very beginning. It's just now they're, you know, they don't have that filter of character and story. They're just, you know, telling you, telling it like it is and, and very directly now. And so that, that I think, that character-based storytelling and I think that class-based storytelling are linked. I think they're, they're pretty much the same thing, actually. And I mean, again, I think even on their first two albums, they were doing this with these more, these really like not necessarily very likable or respectable kinds of characters, but still trying to make them like not trying to put them on a pedestal, but make them somehow sympathetic. Yeah. One of the first songs they ever recorded was called Bulldozers and Dirt. I met your mom and it's about a guy who's trying hard to resist the advances of his teenage stepdaughter. And so he goes out in the backyard on a backhoe and pushes dirt around all day to kind of try and it's like his cold shower it's like how do you make a song about that how do you make it good that you want to hear it more than once like how do you how do you make that into something that's that compelling and that like that's like i when i first heard that it was like i didn't realize that rock songs could do that that was a big deal that song in particular i still think about is like it's like a a magic trick or something like how did he like sleight of hand how did he do that it's like I, don't, I still don't know yeah yeah it's amazing so I feel like this connects to if we keep moving around a little bit throughout the south outside of Gillsburg Mississippi 
and what happened there. And the chapter, the conceptual chapter that that opens <laughs> up. Also, that actual chapter in your book. Yeah. But I wonder if you could talk about the story of what happened there and then how that also connects to the truckers themselves. Okay. So as far as I understand it, the truckers have never been to Gillsburg, but the band that has been to Gillsburg is Leonard Skinnerd. Their plane actually crashed there and killed, among other people, the frontman Ronnie Van Zant. And that plane crash became sort of like a, I don't want to say urban legend, but rural legends. Like in the South, for a certain generation of guys, there were a lot of rumors that spread. That sort of those legends that arose out of that, that really fascinated the band. And so they started writing a a rock opera about Leonard Skinner and about that plane crash and about all of those legends that, that kind of informed their own love of rock and roll, but sort of that generational relationship with, with Southern rock. And that became Southern rock opera. And that's kind of when they kind of make a name for themselves with, with that. And, you know, it, it, it ends with the plane going down and this incredible song called Angels and Fuselage that like, kind of tries to imagine an afterlife for the band. And it, it's a very moving, moving moment at the end. And, and I've seen them play that song and in shows with it a lot and it's 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 always this remarkable moment where they all kind of leave the stage all at once and and usually Brad Morgan the drummer is left playing this beat this stoic beat and and he just plays it a little longer than you expect like he's just trying to keep them alive that those few extra moments it's it's a very moving thing um, so yeah so they the the trucker story and the Skinner story are kind of in, intertwined in in interesting ways yeah, you argue in the book that early Skinner before the plane crash was actually a little bit more complex than what they then became. Oh, yeah. That was one of the amazing discoveries for me, at least. I think other people knew this, but I always thought of Skinner as being like that, you know, that kind of rock band that always had the Confederate flag around and, and they were just, you know, Southern pride and blah, blah, blah. But they were they were really interrogating that in certain ways. In certain ways, they weren't. But there were ways that they were subverting what at the time was a pretty widespread ideal of Southern masculinity that you see in Walking Tall or Deliverance or, you know, uh, even like Jimmy Carter. Even Jimmy Carter seemed like a, a, a – his presidency seemed like a product of this idea of Southern manhood in the 70s. And Skinner were subverting that. Uh, there's a song called Three Steps where – this guy at a bar comes up and threatens him. And I think there's a line where he, like, you know, pisses himself and then, like, is asking the guy, just give me a head start to run away from you. And it's like in the middle of the of a fight, he's not a hero. He's a coward. He wants to run away. And it's like that's a pretty powerful thing to to write a song about as a Southerner. And then you've got a lot of songs about guns. There's a song where he's just like basically saying, you know, like, we got to take these guns and put them at the bottom of the ocean because that's where they belong. And it's like that is a band that has been adopted and is now viewed as a as a very right wing pro-gun band. And they're not really that at all. There's something a little bit more complicated. Granted, that's the band without Ronnie Van Zant, who was the songwriter. So there's a distinction between the Skinner we know now, which I think of as a zombie band, kind of rose from the dead after he died and and uh, kept going without him. And, and I don't think they're nearly the band that they were. Side note, Jimmy Carter's presidency as an example of a certain kind of Southern manhood. Just can you explain? Oh, make sure. sure what you're yeah. thinking about there. So, so I just haven't thought about like you know I think of the like put on a sweater and solar panels <laughs> when I think of Jimmy Carter. <laughs> so, somebody asked me one time about Southern rock and what makes Southern rock as we sort of know it from the '70s different from like rock bands from the South. 
And I think of Southern rock as being a very specifically 70s thing that encompasses the Allman Brothers all the way up through Skinner's plane crash and, and Carter as a point where you're getting these new depictions of what it means to be a man in America and, and, and seeing the Southern redneck as like this great example of masculinity because he's, he's somebody who's you know physically strong and speaks his mind and can win a fight. And, you know, you kind of get that in the Allman Brothers, uh, a very soulful uh, version of that uh, and a very problematic example of that. And I think that kind of leads up to Carter. I mean, like a lot of those guys were 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 campaigning for Carter. Um, the uh, the Almonds played several shows for him. And I think he kind of played into that. He he wasn't as much of a of an example as like Greg Allman would have been or, or, or Ronnie Van Zant, but he was sort of like I think people saw him in that same way as this kind of like southern man who was gonna who's gonna get in there and, and push people around, I guess. Which is totally not what happened. He was a very different sort of southern man than the seventies offered us. And I think that's really fascinating. I'm I'm really I find it very rewarding to see his legacy being rewritten. Uh, there's a documentary recently called The uh, Rock and Roll President about him and about his relationship to rock and roll and music to, in general and hosting all of these great concerts at the White House. And, and uh, you know, it feels like a continuum to me. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Stephen Deusner about Southern Rock, the South, and the book he just published about the drive-by truckers. This is Interstates. When we come back, Stephen talks about having to take a hard look at his own life and stories when he wrote about his grandmother Love in the book. And yes... That's her real name. We'll be right back. States, Alex Chambers. We're talking about Stephen Deusner's book, Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. Stephen wrote a lot more about his own life in this book than he ever had before as a critic. Was it a challenge for you to write more personally, like to include yourself? Did you feel uncomfortable with it? There were times. You know, it started out when I fir- the first sort of chapter draft that I wrote was for my hometown, Selmer. That's the first one. That's where I started. And so I really did have to kind of examine a lot of my own assumptions about the South and, and ideas about the South and really challenge myself. And I really had to challenge myself to write very precisely. There's a part in the Birmingham chapter, which is where my mother's family is from, where I write about sitting in bed as a child with my grandmother, Grandmother Love, that's her real name, and she would read me or tell me. She didn't have to read. She had them memorized. The the Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Bear story, Br'er Fox, the uh, Joel Chandler Harris stuff. And at the time, I just thought these were great stories. She would do the voices and the dialects and everything. And I think now people would see that as very problematic. Joel Chandler Harris is a, is a very sort of complicated and contradictory character. These stories, I did some research into them, and they're like – People don't know what to do with them because they do, on one hand, preserve a lot of folklore, but they kind of benefited a white man who really thought slaves were better off if they stayed on the plantation. And I really had to sort of dive into what this meant for my grandmother to be telling me these stories as a child. And I I still don't think I've quite figured that out. But when I think back on them, I think back on the this sort of boundless love and just this feeling of security of being in, in, in a child 
with her. And I think that's important. And I think that that complicates things. And, and I have to deal with that. And so, yeah, that was one that really, I went through several drafts. I, I found myself trying to write away from it or put too fine a point on it. And I think it kind of allowed me, I, I think I finally allowed myself to leave it unsolved and unsettled. Because I, I, I think that that is something that will probably be unsolved and unsettled when I die. I probably will not have like figured out exactly how to feel about that. So, yeah, I, I, there were moments that were a little uncomfortable. But I think that discomfort was useful. Which I think the truckers teach us too. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, they're, it's weird because for a band that is so beloved – they really do challenge their their fans. They don't let them get too comfortable. So, so I have I think two more things I wanted to to ask you, and one of those uh, things is about that. If you have any particular songs that you want to just maybe make sure to give a shout out to, I mean, I know there's like a, probably two hundred <laughs> that you'd probably want to. I mean, right off the top of my head. There's a song called The Deeper In that's off of Decoration Day, which is Decoration Day is still, to me, I think their best album. It's the first one with Jason Isbell. It's the first one after Southern Rock Opera. And so I think they're kind of feeling it. Like they're just like, this is our moment. Let's let's just let's hit it hard. And it starts with a very quiet song about a brother and sister who fall in love. And you didn't meet him till you were 19 years old Old enough to know better Old enough to know better But you took to his jawline and long sandy hair And they run off together And they start a family And they are arrested and jailed And their family is split up And it is taking something that is such a, a cliched Southern joke about incest, about rural families, sort of the family trees that sort of grow back into themselves. It is that is a that has always been a sort of a, a joke about the South, about the rural South, and they Patterson takes that song, takes that idea, puts it to a story. And find so much humanity and so much compassion. And it's it ends in a way that I find very devastating because it's very open-ended. It doesn't – it's not a, a, a settled ending. It's still sort of up in the air. And, and it is – I don't know. I find that really remarkable. I, I remember talking to Jason Isbell and he, was, he said that that was one of the first ones who was like, oh, I get it. I get what these guys are doing. And I think you can kind of tell – that there's a little bit of that song in a lot of what Jason Isbell does these days, too. I would also want to shout out Uncle Frank, which is a Mike Cooley song. And that's like one of the first like 10 or 12 he wrote. Like he was a late bloomer, but man, when he started, he it's like he had everything he needed just right there. But anyway, Uncle Frank is a story about building the Wilson Dam and, or building Wilson Reservoir and flooding this area. That had been sort of home to a lot of people who were, like we said, kind of on the fringes a little bit. Guys who sort of made a living off the earth in a very resourceful manner and how those people and that that kind of culture that built up around those people was completely obliterated when they flooded this area to to build the uh, Wilson Reservoir and you know it's not anti progress it's not it's not uh, trying to suggest that this that this larger project was not worthwhile, but it is just trying to say, these are the people who get left behind. These are the people who get rewritten out of out of history. This is sort of the debris of progress. And much like The Deeper End, it ends with just this, one of the 
finest moments in their catalog um, where Cooley is singing about this Uncle Frank who he says is fictional but is based on real people. And Uncle Frank couldn't read or write, so there's no note or letter found when he died, just a noose around his neck and a kitchen table turned on its side. And it's just like that just gives you chills. I mean, that is coming down to a, to a person. That's the price. And uh, that's a song that I I've, every time I hear it, I find a, a new implication or a new new angle on it. I was listening to it on the way here, in fact, and I was just like, damn, I picked a good good subject for a book. <laughs> I think good. And I think another reason it's such a good subject is just they've been so uh, prolific over the years, which is, brings me to the last thing I want to ask. And because I was thinking about this geographically, I was sort of thinking to come back. You know, Patterson moves to Portland, Oregon, so we've got, you know, that part, and your book ends out west. But here we are in Bloomington, and you're writing a lot of the book at the coffee shop that that we both have done writing in in the past. And I'm thinking about what you got from writing the book and spending all this time with them. Do you have insights as a result of this about maintaining, like, a creative life managing to continue to create really interesting and worthwhile work over such a long period of time. I mean, they've been writing songs for decades. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a very good question. And I can't speak specifically for them because I think Patterson would probably have a very good answer for this. As I see it, I mean, I think the secret to that is kind of having these obsessions that you can move from and on to the next that, you know, that are, are, you know, using your craft and your art to, it's not having something to say. It's about figuring out what you want to say, figuring out what you believe and how you see the world. I tend to think of uh, a lot of songwriters as falling into two camps. One is people who want to tell you something. They're going to write a song in order to express something that they already know. And then I think there are other people who write a song to figure out what they're feeling or what they think. And I tend to gravitate toward the latter. And I think that the truckers definitely fall into that category because even these songs that are so concrete that are filled with these beautiful details and these incredibly complex characters they're never quite settled they never quite you know they don't mean one thing you you kind of you can read a lot into them but even just living with them and growing with them and, and you know hearing them in different contexts they reveal new things and I, I think that that not only gives people like me and all these diehard fans something to grab onto and to sort of live with, but I think it gives them something to bounce off of. They don't get tired of playing these songs. They've played The Living Bubba and Three Dimes Down. They've played those hundreds of times, and they don't get tired of them because I think they're still trying to figure out what what the, the implications of these songs are. I, I think that's that's a big part of it. And just uh, they don't get as much credit for the breadth of their catalog, too. So I think having all of these different musical ideas and, and, and paths that they want to go down is, is a big deal as well. Yeah, I, I, I next time I interview Patterson, I, want, I actually kind of want to ask him that because that's a very good question and, and one that – I will probably wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning thinking, oh, I should have said that. That's the obvious answer. But I'll, I guess I'll leave it there for now. Well, awesome. Stephen Dusner, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Stephen Dusner's book is Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. Coming up, a review of a band that started almost by accident here in southern Indiana and ended up on a best-of list from someone you've probably heard of regardless of where you live. This is Adrian Pontecorvo, reviewing the latest album from Duran Jones and the Indications. When former President Barack Obama released his favorite songs of 2021 playlist, 
No one was surprised by his eclectic mix of chart toppers and critical darlings, including much talked about artists like Lil Nas X, Mitski, and Lizzo. Bloomington locals, though, would likely have been even more interested in another featured act, Duran Jones and the Indications, a local favorite rooted in classic soul sounds that's been making waves since their first live show at the Bishop Bar in 2014. At the time, that show was also meant to be the band's last, the fleeting culmination of a serendipitous collaboration. Instead, it launched a nationally acclaimed career. Like so many local artists, frontman Duran Jones first came to town as a student at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. The school has plenty of high-profile acts, and it wasn't long before Jones was deeply involved. He played alto saxophone in the famed Canary Quartet, then he started singing in the IU Soul Review. The Soul Review has been an incubator for R&B, soul, funk, and black pop performers for half a century. It was with the Soul Review that Jones met engineer Blake Ryan. Ryan invited Jones to start writing songs with him and drummer Aaron Fraser, and before long, they had enough music to put on their single planned show. By the end of the gig at the Bishop, though, it was clear that audiences wanted more of the newly minted indications and their retro stylings. Soon, they got it. In 2015, Coalmine Records released their self-titled debut, made up of recordings from their early jam sessions. It established the group as fully in tune with 60s soul and 70s funk. The album picked up so much steam that the group finally started touring in 2017, with Steve Okonski joining the lineup on organs. In 2018, the group's debut got a much-needed reissue from indie label Dead Oceans, a member of Bloomington's Secretly group. That same year, a live album with tracks recorded in Bloomington and Boston brought the group's onstage energy to listeners everywhere. 2019 sophomore album American Love Call showed off the indication's thoughtful side, packed with ballads on issues of social justice and anthems of love and loss. A handful of singles released over 2020 included a cover of Young Americans and originals Never Heard Him Say and Power to the People. Most recently, Duran Jones and the Indications have launched their productions to greater heights by supplementing slow jams with modern takes on vintage disco on 2021's Private Space. Which You, the album's second track and former President Obama's pick, is a particular standout in that regard. It takes us straight to the dance floor with neon-colored synths and a particularly nimble bass line. As Jones and Fraser pass quick verses back and forth, they build up energy. Raising it up even further is a cloud of carefully placed background chatter suggesting a full crowd. Other tracks keep the disco references more classic. The Way That I Do punctuates heated lyrics with bars of four-on-the-floor beats and airy sections of intricate strings. Okonski's piano chords and Michael Montgomery's riveting bass line carry the cool mid-tempo grooves of Sea of Love from a low-key start to an electrifying finale. There are new vocal dynamics on private space between Jones and Fraser, the group's two lead singers. Jones grew up singing in gospel choirs, and it's always served him well with the indications. He brings a powerful range of emotions to every song. On More Than Ever, he gives one of his most versatile performances yet as he winds smoothly from soft and soothing to totally exuberant. On the other hand, Fraser sings with a Smokey Robinson-adjacent falsetto. There's a sweetness to even his strongest moments. On the soaring title track, this is especially clear as Fraser croons over a full bed of keys, flutes, and harps. While Jones's name still gets top billing and some of the group's best tracks, Fraser's voice has become more prominent in the indications mix over time. The added high end lends itself well to many of the group's more sentimental ballads, making for a satisfying foil to Jones's richer tones. It's especially sublime when Jones and Fraser sing together, like they do in the warmly layered choruses of love song Ride or Die. Songs about love, lust, and good times make up the bulk of private space, but the indications always take some time to go deeper. Perhaps the album's greatest lyrical triumph is right up front, with opening track Love Will Work It Out. Here, Jones delivers heartfelt messages of hope and solidarity in the face of violence, systemic injustice, sickness, and death. He's deeply sincere as he sings about feeling the pain of lives lost and global strife. He's even more passionate as he sings his solution, that joy will set us free. 
On the other end of the album, I Can See offers a rosy outlook on an unknown future, one kept clear by the relative simplicity of the track's mellow keys and gentle bass line, and elevated by simmering guitar fuzz. Together, these two tracks frame Private Space as an album that signals change for the better. For old fans, this album is a moving reintroduction to Duran Jones and the Indications. For new listeners, it's an electrifying place to start. The Indications forged their initial bond over a love of the classics. Now, they're far beyond revival as they expand their sound into modern electro-soul. As much as they continue to pay tribute to their longtime musical influences, their appeal here goes beyond vintage curiosity and nostalgia. Familiar sounds have a fresh cutting edge and contemporary relevance. This is a group at the top of their game so far in terms of songcraft and production. At the start of the pandemic, the indications spent a lot of time apart. Private Space is a celebration of coming together again. They're reconnecting with each other and with the musical community, both in Bloomington and beyond. And for all the album's surprises, the amount of buzz the group is getting isn't shocking. While they'll always hold a special place in the hearts of their Hoosier fans, it seems likely that Duran Jones and the Indications are destined for fame on a much larger scale. Adrian Pontecorvo is a music writer studying ethnomusicology at Indiana University. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aobon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Stephen Dusner and Adrian Pontecorvo. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time to take a breath and listen to a place. In case it's not obvious, that was the sound of 10 million crows. Winter, Bloomington, Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.